It's a lovely day, isn't it? It's lovely outside, it's lovely inside. Uh, I am David, and this is uh, my wife, Yvonne, and I just wanted you to know who she is. And Yvonne, would you? I'd love to. Mm-hmm. I can hardly contain it, I'd love to. <laughs> you know, we've loved you and prayed for you, but I didn't know how deep the love went until we came around the corner. Can you imagine all the Lord has done in such a short amount of time? And you're, it's lovely that the sea is so nearby, whatever direction it is. That way. <laughs> because even as we sang, thank you worship team for leading us. We sang and we realized that love rolling over you. That ocean of love. <laughs> And that ocean of love that really connects us with the whole rest of the world. I wanted to just, like I said, my heart's so full. It feels like words are tumbling out, but I just wanted to say a couple things. Um, we have two children and two grandchildren. Um, and I'm really uh, grateful, eternally grateful for that privilege. Uh, today my heart feels like a mother's heart for you. And I recognized it's Mothering Sunday in the United States and in much of Latin America where we lived. We were missionaries for 28 years. And so I guess the Mothering Sunday today just sort of uh, exacerbates, makes that love deeper for me. Um, in the world, today, as a part of the Free Methodist Church, the church has gathered in more than 80 countries. Uh, there are about a million four hundred million five hundred like-minded brothers and sisters. Even Mike, as you reminded, uh, I think us. you mean to say like a million four hundred thousand. A million yeah. four hundred right. five hundred thousand. Yes, uh, and I just wanted you to be aware. I think it's the best time in the history of the world and the history of the church to be alive. So, just as you shared, Kieran. Um, Remember that long arm of love that crossed your pathway. Even this week, it seems to me like the Lord would duplicate himself through you in another person this week. So maybe even next Sunday, uh, at least doubled the amount of believers in this area. I mean, God is at work. Yes. Yeah. And we, that expectancy is what, uh, mm. I mean, his spirit is blowing. Can you hear it? Mm. You're so beloved. I just wanted to say that again. Mm. Just so loved. Every detail about you and detail of your family. I pray that your eyes, that Jesus would just lift up your face and let him see your, his radiance, his eyes upon you. The Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you, honey. And happy Mothering's Day. Well, I thank Pastor John and uh, Pete, who's not here, and Mark, I don't see you, and Pete, and from Liscard, thank you, though, for joining together the congregations this there. Thank thank you for joining together the congregations this morning. I have a... uh, An idea. So, I simply want to tell you a story today. 
from the good book. You know, much... Honey, could I use your Bible? Mine's electronic, and it's not quite the same, is it? So you know that... You know that the Bible is uh, not really a collection of sermons, is it? It's a collection of stories. That's the way God chose to communicate with us. And most of the time, he does not explain the stories. He says, I made you with great intelligence, and I'll let you sort them out. So that's my thought this morning, is let me tell you one of the significant stories, but I'm not going to tell you what it means. You know, we preachers are pretty good at telling you what it means, and I have some ideas about it, what it means, but I've found that in your wisdom, you will find better what it means for you. So I don't only tell stories, but this morning that would be my thought. Abraham has a son. The son of the promise is named Isaac. Good. Isaac has a son of the promise named, do you remember? Jacob. Right? And then Jacob has 12 sons and one daughter named Dinah. Now, did we hear of ninth son was born today? Was that ninth son? No, not ninth. So just imagine 12 plus a daughter. Imagine a family of 13. The oldest son is named Reuben. The next son is Simeon. The next son is Levi. The next son is Judah. And so on down the line until you get to the next of the last son, Joseph. The last son is Benjamin. The next to the last son is an arrogant lad. If you had a brother like this, you did not like him. And you might have had a brother you didn't like. But he was the one who was the father's pet. Thought he was better than everyone else. So his brothers began a practice that we call today human trafficking. And they sold him. They sold him to some passing traders. They took him down to Egypt. This one then named Joseph is in Egypt. He is a slave. But because the hand of God is on him, he rises to become second only to the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt. So much so that he's in a position of power that when there is a famine up north where his family, these other brothers and sister and the whole extended family are living, so much so that when there's a famine there and they have to come down to Egypt, he is able to provide food for them. So they move the whole family down to Egypt. They're there. He dies. They're there for a total of 430 years. They become, they drop in social class and become the slaves of Pharaoh. They become the brick makers to make the monuments for Pharaoh. These are the Hebrew people These are the children of Jacob, what we call the children of Israel. Uh, They're slaves there 430 years until God raises up a man named Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I will not let them go because they're useful to me. Moses comes back and comes back. He comes back ten times and each time he has a sign from God. The tenth sign from God, the final sign from God is revealed when Pharaoh gets up in the middle of the night. He goes to check on his firstborn son and instead of a warm body, he finds a cold body. His son is dead, not just his son, but the firstborn of all the animals and all the people in Egypt are dead. So he calls in Moses now and he says, get out of here. 
your people have become a stench to us. Moses has prepared the people. They leave that night in the biggest jailbreak in history. Perhaps two million, perhaps six million people, not just the children of Jacob, Israel, but other slaves as well. They flood out of Egypt. The doors are open. They leave Egypt. They head down, apparently on a mistaken path. They get to, I say apparently, because they get to the edge of the sea. There's no way across between them and France. They don't know what to do. Charlton Heston stands up, lifts up his staff... (laughs) The sea parts, the Red Sea parts, they walk across as though on dry land. Pharaoh changes his mind, pursues them. They get out in the middle of the channel. Uh, The staff is lowered. The waves crash back in. They die. And now you have these ex-slaves who only know how to make bricks out there somewhere in the Arabian Peninsula. They are disobedient to God, so he says, for every day that you were spying out the land and didn't go in, you're going to spend a year in, in, in lostness. So they spend 40 years wandering around the desert. Finally, Moses dies. Joshua, his, his uh, chief of staff, then takes them across the Jordan River. The walls of Jericho fall down. They begin to reconquer the land which was theirs. Women like Deborah lead the people. Men like Samson and Gideon lead the people. These are names and stories you've all known, you've all heard since childhood. I'm just trying to... Sh- Fit them all in together, right? So you, you get the point of this story. We're, we will get to eventually. <laughs> so these are judges, and the people, though, tire of these judges, the ones I mentioned. They're more like um, popular rulers of the people, but the people say, no, everyone, all the nations around us have their own proper king, and we want a king. We want a king. God says, I don't think you really do. The people say, yeah, we do. He said, okay, I'll give you a king. So he selects the first king, a very tall man, Saul, who starts out well, ends poorly, actually takes his own life. He is succeeded by a young, younger man, a, a, a man from a town called Bethlehem, a man who made his fame by taking five stones from from a riverbed and using just one of them to kill a giant named Goliath. He is now David, the second king of Israel. David is the, this is the peak. These are the golden years for the people of Israel. King David, uh, he eventually dies. His son Solomon, uh, mother Bathsheba, Solomon becomes king. Solomon is not as wise as you might think he has hundreds of wives and concubines, just to keep track of their birthdays. He would have needed a calendar for that. (laughs) He has a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam is a bit of a... We would, in America, we would say he was a jerk. I don't know if you have that expression, but yeah. He was just a jerk. So the people rebel, and led by the unfortunately named because it's almost the same name, Jeroboam. So Jeroboam takes the northern part of the people of Israel. These were 
ten tribes, ten descendants of the twelve sons. He takes them up in the north, and he separates the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom. Now, the temple of Solomon is in the southern kingdom, in Jerusalem, you know, today where the mosque is, all that, right? So that's where the temple was. But in the north, the kings of the north have figured out something. They figured out that they can't have their people going back down south to the temple because they're trying to say we're a separate nation. They kind of had one of those exit votes, and they've exited from the... <laughs> they, sorry to be too contemporary, but the exit from the... Uh, from the whole nation, and now they're in the north, and they've said, we can't have our folks going back down south, so instead we're going to make up our own religion. Now, here's a tip for you. If you decide to make up your own religion, it's really very convenient. You can make God however you would like him to be. You can make him like Santa Claus. Why not? If you're going to make it up, make up an easy one. And that's what they did. They said, we need some priests. Who are going to be priests? Any volunteers? Okay, you, you, you. You're priests. Put a little oil on their forehead. Okay, you guys are priests now. But we really need a God. Let's see, what shall we do? So they reached back into their history and they remembered the golden calf that had leapt out of the fire. <laughs> and they said, we'll make another calf. By calf, I don't know if you can understand, but I mean a, a little cow. What would you call them? A cough. <laughs> they made a little cough. So, you know, you can imagine a little statue of a gold, out of gold, a little calf. And they said, here is your God. And everybody's like, oh, great, this is a cool God. We've got a little calf. And they started worshiping it. They said, you don't need to go back to, back to Jerusalem anymore. They set up their own places of worship. Now, one of these kings was named Zimri. He had a son named uh, Omri. And Omri had a son named Ahab. Ahab is where I want to get to. That was a long history to get to Ahab, right? But it's important for us to understand we're in this same story. It's a long story, isn't it? And I think the point of the story has something to do with you in the middle of a long story. But you look at this situation in the north and you think, how could they have detoured so far from what God had intended. I mean, these are the people of God, right? These are the chosen ones, and they're worshiping calves. How can this be? Now it gets worse, because Ahab marries a foreign woman from the town called Sidon. She is a Sidonian princess. Her father was king. She was an evil woman. Her name was Jezebel. Are there any Jezebels here today? I mean, who, your name is Jezebel. <laughs> No one, right? I would doubt that you even know a woman named Jezebel because mothers, when they hold that little daughter, newborn, in their arms, they don't think of that as a good name. Jezebel was an evil woman. Had there been television in those days, it would have been housewives of... She would have been one of, housewives of Israel, it would have been Jezebel, would have been the star. I mean, she was a master of palace intrigue. Uh, she was a master of the backstab. Complex woman. And now she's the queen of Israel. Ahab, her husband, is the king. 
just to give you an idea, like the way she thought, the way she worked. One day, Ahab saw a lovely vineyard outside his palace. He lived in Samaria, which is a town as well as a region. It was the capital of the northern part. He lived there. He looks out and he sees this lovely garden next door. And he says, I would love that. So who's, who, who does that, to whom does that belong? He finds out, he goes to see the guy. The guy's name is Naboth. He goes to Naboth and he says, sell me the plot of land. Naboth says, no, I won't because it's part of my inheritance. It's part of the family plot. I can't, I can't sell it to you. And the king says, well, name your price. Whatever, I will buy it from you. Naboth says, no, I can't sell it to you. I'm telling you. Even though you're the king, I can't sell it to you. So the king goes into a funk. He goes into a depressive fit. He goes home and he goes to bed. He cannot get out of bed. You know, when you're chronically depressed, it's that way. You just have no... You have no desire to get up. He couldn't get up. He couldn't eat. He's lying there in bed. Jezebel comes along and says, what is wrong with you, you sniveling little man? And he says, well, I wanted to buy the the garden of Naboth and he wouldn't sell it to me. And she says, what don't you understand about being king? Let me show you how it's done where I come from. So she gets out the royal stationery pad and she pretends to write a letter from Ahab. She writes to the elders of the town of Naboth. Dear elders, we want Naboth dead. Have a feast. Get some scoundrels to give false testimony. And then I don't care how you do it. But let me know when the dirty deed is done. Sincerely, King Ahab sends it off. The elders of Naboth's town receive it. What are we going to do? Well, we have to do it. It's the king. So they have the feast. They get a couple of rascals to stand up and say, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Oh, oh my. Well, we must stone him. So they take stones in their hand. They take him outside of the city. They throw rocks at his skull until it's crushed and he's dead. Jezebel gets the word. She goes into King Ahab. All right, there you have it. You see, that's how one does this. Take your silly little garden. So he got up and he took it. That's the kind of woman she was. Now, when he imported her from Sidon, she got to Israel and she saw these little calf gods. She said, it's not really a proper god, is it? I mean... A god should inspire terror and fear where I come from. What is this? Moo! (laughs) Oh! She said, I'll show you a real god. So she imports from home a god named Baal. You can hear the roots of that word in Beelzebub. The demon, the evil one, Satan, Beelzebub. That comes from Baal. So she brings in this demon god, a big evil statue. And with her god, she brings 450 prophets, priests. So the whole country is just totally, has totally deviated from the way of God. Hmm. 
God does not leave them without a witness. On the palace door, they open it. Here's a man named Elijah. Elijah's a rough-cut man. And he said to the king, just so you know, just to get your attention, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. See ya. (laughs) One week goes by, there's no rain. The king, well, it's a coincidence. A month goes by, there's no rain. Well, this is strange. A year goes by, it's no, there's no rain. And now, Elijah has the king's attention, but he can't find Elijah. He's nowhere to be found. Two years go by, people are starving. Three years go by without any crops. They are in desperate straits. Elijah comes back. Well, now that I have your attention, king, and the king says, yes. Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. I want you to call all Israel together on the mountain we call Mount Carmel, over near the Mediterranean. I want you to call all Israel together. Let's say next Thursday. The king says, fine. So he sends out runners. The runners go to the various towns of Israel. Everybody come together on Mount Carmel next Thursday. Thursday comes. They're all there. Elijah says to them, Quiet down, everybody. How long are you going to vacillate between the one true God and this thing they call Baal? It's time to decide. What will it be? No one said a word. He said, well, I can help you decide. I propose to you today a contest Everybody's like, that's good. A contest. A contest between the gods. We will determine today which one of the gods is the true God. Everybody's like, yeah, good idea. What kind of contest? How can you prove what's God, who's God? He said, we're going to have a barbecue cook-off contest. Everybody's like, yeah, free food. Rock on, dude. Elijah said, here's how we're going to do it. Over here we have the 450 prophets of Baal. They will get one bull. And they will get firewood. I will have, by myself, a bull and firewood. But neither side will get a match. And each side will pray to their God that he will send the match from heaven to light the fire, and the one God who is able to do that will prove himself to be the true God. Everybody's like, oh, that's a good idea. Okay, good, let's do it. Elijah says to the 450 prophets, you guys go first. So they get their bull and they cut him up and they put all the meat on top of the wood and then they start dancing around because they have their rituals. They have impressive ways of intimidating the people and showing them. But, you know, they've never tried to do a fire dance before. And they're like, do you guys know a fire dance? Oh, I just make it up. You know, we'll wing it. So they start dancing around. It's like, and they're dancing around. 450 men dancing. And when it hasn't rained for three years, there's going to be a lot of dust in the air. So the dust starts billowing and there is no fire from the sky. After a while, I mean, Elijah has a bit of a, of a, he's a bit of an irritant. 
So he doesn't just stand by there and let them suffer quietly. He begins to ridicule them. And he says, oh, I bet Baal is, I bet this is his day off. Tough luck for you guys that Thursday's his day off. Well, this infuriates the priests, so they dance all the louder. And he says, oh, maybe he's on vacation. Or maybe he's in the back room and can't hear you. Scream a little louder. So they're screaming, and now they get out their knives, and they start cutting themselves. Because this was part of their ritual. They would cut themselves, and the blood would spurt on the ground. They're dancing around. There's blood on the ground. Men are fainting and falling down. They're doing all these things they usually did to impress people. But there was no fire from the sky. Finally, late in the afternoon, they grow weary. They're exhausted. They throw in the towel, they sit down, and they say, okay, let's see you, wise guy. Because they had made up their religion, they assumed that Elijah had made his up too. So Elijah kills his bull, cuts up the meat. And then he looks around on the ground, he finds a big stone, he brings it over, and he says, Reuben, finds another stone, picks it up, sets it next to it. Simeon, third stone, picks it up. Levi, four stone, Judah, 12 stones ending with Benjamin. And all Israel got his point. Twelve, not ten. Then on top of these stones, it's he's made an altar. He's made a platform. On top of those stones, he puts the firewood. Now, it, it, it must have been a pretty good sized pile of wood because he puts a whole bull on top of it. I mean, that's a, you know, if you've seen... A, a bull cut up, there's a lot of meat. So he's got the sirloins here, he's got the roast here, he's got the, the burgers here, he, he, he's got the kidneys here. I mean, the whole thing's there and the people have been watching all day and they're hungry and that meat over there is still rare. <laughs> he sees four jugs. And Elijah says, fill them up with water and bring them to me. So they bring him four jugs of water. While they're out doing that, he gets a shovel and he digs a trench, a small trench, around the perimeter of the stones. And the people are wondering, what's what's the trench for? But then when he brings the jugs of water, they get it. Because he pours the jugs of water on the meat and it trickles down and begins to wet the wood. Then he says, fill them up and bring them again. They bring four jugs again. And he pours those on the meat. Now the meat is soaked. The wood is soaked. Bring them again. They bring them again. Four times three. How many is that? Twelve. Okay. Hmm. He brings them. and Now twelve jugs of water have been poured. The meat's soaked. The wood's soaked. The stones are, are soaked. And the little trench around the perimeter has filled with water. There is going to be no way of explaining this. Nobody can claim, oh, it was spontaneous combustion, or oh, it was a very hot day, or oh, he used some trick. He wants to definitively decide, once and for all, this is the true God. Then he says to the people, 
come nearer. So they all come in. They're queuing up for the food. Come nearer, he says. They come even nearer. Now they can all hear him quite clearly. He tilts his head back and he looks up at the clear blue sky. It hasn't rained for three years. Not a cloud in the sky. And he says, Oh God! God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Show yourself to these people today so that they can know you are the true God and I'm not just making this stuff up. Show yourself to them today to turn their hearts back to you. To turn their hearts back to... Out of the clear blue sky comes a bolt of... I imagine it must have been like lightning. Just this column of fire from the sky centered right on this pile of rock, meat, and wood. It consumes the meat. It doesn't just cook it. It's gone. It's ashes. It's so hot it consumes the wood under the meat. Not just that. It consumes the rocks under the wood under the meat. Not just that. The fire is so hot it licks up the water in the trench. And now there is just this blackened earth. This patch of black earth and a few ashes in the air. The people are, uh, are fearful. They're amazed. They're frightened. This bolt from the sky has just dropped to the ground within feet of them. They fall on their faces and as one person they begin to chant, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Elohim, He is God. And then they look up at those 450 suddenly nervous prophets of Baal. (laughs) And Elijah says, that's right. They were leading you to death and they must die. They take them down in the valley and they kill them. They didn't kill Ahab though. He was there. Jezebel wasn't there, but Ahab was there. They didn't kill him. Elijah said to him, you know, it's a shame you brought the convertible chariot today because it looks like rain to me. (laughs) If I were you, he said, I'd have something to eat and drink and then I'd head as fast as I could back back to the palace. Ahab says, aren't you coming? No, I'm going to go up the mountain a little bit. So he takes his servant. This is Elijah, takes his servant. Goes up the mountain a little bit. Now, I've been on Mount Carmel. It's very near the Mediterranean. If you look westward, in fact, you can see the Mediterranean. If you look eastward, you can almost see back there to the Sea of Galilee. I mean, that's where it is in Israel. So if you go up there, uh, he goes up there and he's with his servant. He puts his knees on the ground and then he puts his head between his knees and he prays for rain. A few minutes ago, he was praying for fire. Now he's praying for rain. Then he tells a servant, go out and look over the ocean, see if there are any clouds forming. So the servant goes and he looks out there. He says, comes back. He says, no, not a cloud in the sky. Elijah prays a second time. Go look again. 
So the servant goes and looks again. No boss, no clouds. Well, go look a third time. He prays a third time. Go look a third time. So he goes and looks. Comes back. No, no, there's nothing there. Three times. He prays again. Fourth time. Now go look. He goes out and looks. No, nothing there. Elijah, the great prophet, has to pray a fifth time. Now go look. He goes out and looks. Come back. No, I'm telling you, there are no clouds in the sky. He prays a sixth time. Now go look. Nope, there's nothing there. He prays a seventh time. Now go look. The servant goes out and looks and says, well, that's strange. Comes back and says to Elijah, I don't know if it means anything or not, but there's a small cloud. Elijah says, how big? Ah, about the size of the hand of a palm of a man. Elijah gets up, dusts himself off, says, that's big enough. It's enough for me. He takes his robe, because in those days they didn't wear trousers, you know. He took his robe and he tucked it up in his belt. And the Spirit of God comes on him. And it's a running spirit. And he starts running, literally running. He starts running. He runs down the hill. He runs so fast that as this little cloud behind him becomes a thunderhead, becomes a massive cloud, and begins to overtake him, he overtakes the king who's in his chariot heading back to Samaria. Children come out and they watch the clouds begin to unleash the the rain. And farmers come out and they're crying out of thankfulness. Finally rain after three years. Children are playing in the mud puddles, the king's chariot is getting caught in the mud, Elijah zooms by him, gets to the palace, he's there waiting when King Ahab pulls up to the palace, and Elijah <sighs> okay, we did it, right, king? You know, we proved it today, right? Once and for all, it's all over, right? It's gonna, we're, we're gonna turn back to the true God, right? Elijah believes the definitive proof has been given Ahab goes inside the palace and guess who's waiting? Arms crossed, toe tapping. And where have you been? Ahab's not so confident now with the little woman there. He said, well, you know, a funny thing happened today. (laughs) He's trying to find a way to tell her. He He says, do you remember those 450 prophets you used to have? (laughs) What? What do you mean it used to have? (laughs) Well, I don't know how to tell you this, but (laughs) this is awkward. He tells her the whole story. Jezebel's not impressed. Bring the royal stenographer. So the royal stenographer takes a note. Dear Elijah, She's writing a letter to him. Today there are 450 dead prophets. By this time tomorrow, there will be 451 dead prophets. Smiley face. (laughs) Jezebel. She sends it to him. It spooks him. He runs away. I don't have time to tell you the whole story. Let me fast forward six years, okay? So six years later, Ahab is is still king. And they're at war. Israel is at war with Syria. Can you imagine? (laughs) Wow. 
Israel is at war with Syria. The king of Syria named Ben-Hadad, which just means the son of Hadad, is attacking. The king of Samaria then, the king of Israel, um, Ahab, gets dressed in his armor. Now, in those days, they didn't have real armor. They just had thick leather. They would sew thick leather together. And the weak spot of the armor was in the, the seam, the seam of where the leather would join together. So Ahab gets in his chariot, he goes out to the battle, and in just one of these weird coincidental things that happen from time to time, one of the Syrian archers fitted an arrow to his bow, pointed it randomly in the sky, and let it loose, and in one of these weird coincidental things, the arrow just kind of went up in the air and started down in one of these random coincidental things, and it happened to strike King Ahab. I mean, isn't it weird how these random coincidental things happen. It happened to strike him right in the seam of his armor and that arrow, without even being aimed, plunged deep into his body, striking vital organs. Blood begins to spurt out of his body onto the chariot floor. I've been hit, he says. The chariot driver turns around. They get to the back of the battle. He says, wait here, I want to see how the battle develops. And as the afternoon wears on, his lifeblood spurts onto the floor. He slumps lower and lower until just before evening, King Ahab dies. The chariot driver takes him back to the palace. They bury the body. The chariot driver gets water from the well, throws it on the floor of the chariot, washing the blood out. Dogs come and lap up the blood of the king. His son becomes king. Doesn't last long. Another son named Joram becomes king. And God calls a man named Jehu to wipe out the line of Ahab and Jezebel. I'm glad the children are gone because it's not a pretty picture. Jehu comes after Joram, kills him with his bow and arrow. Then he says, Jehu says to his men, take the body and throw throw it over there in that field. They took the body and threw it over there in, in a pleasant little garden vineyard. Yeah, that garden vineyard. The same one that mommy dearest had procured for her husband at the life of Naboth. Weird the way things work out if you hang around long enough, isn't it? So now Joram's dead body is there rotting in the field of Naboth's garden. And Jehu comes after Jezebel. Jezebel knows he's coming. She puts herself on the second floor, second story window. She's at the window. She throws open the window. And it's interesting, the details we know. We know that she put on eyeliner. We know that she sat there and brushed her hair. Vain, even in death. She wanted to look good, dead. And now Jehu gets to the window. She calls out to him, Have you come for me, Zimri? Remembering her husband's grandfather. Have you come for me, Zimri? And he, he ignores her. He calls instead to the palace and he says, 
Are any of you in there with me? No one says a word, but there's a flurry inside the palace. Somebody grabs her legs from behind and they throw her out the window. And here she comes, somersaulting out the window and splats on the rocks below. Now, a fall from two stories may not kill you. So Jehu makes sure the job is done with his horse's hooves. He rides in and tramples her to death with his horse. He makes sure his horse's legs are bathed in Jezebel's blood. Then he goes inside to eat dinner. He and the lads are inside the palace now eating dinner after they've eaten and drunk. He says, you know what? She was a princess. We should give her a proper burial. So he says, you, 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 go out and bury her. So they go out. The burial detail goes outside. They come back in a few minutes. And he said, I thought I told you to bury her. They said, well, we couldn't, boss. There wasn't enough of her left. The dogs got to her. All we found was her skull, her hands, and her feet. She had pretty eyes. So Jezebel never got buried. The dogs ate her. It's interesting, isn't it? One of those weird coincidences that uh, Elijah never got buried either. He was walking down the road with his, with his protege, his sidekick, Elisha, when the sky kind of opened up. There was this movement of wind, and out of the movement of wind came a chariot. A chariot that was... They tried to describe it and they said it looked like a chariot on fire. Drawn by horses on fire. Swing low, sweet chariot. That's where that song comes from. And Elijah simply stepped off planet Earth onto a chariot of fire and was carried away without ever even dying. But if you pay attention to the long story, he shows up again. Elijah. He shows up again on another mountain, not too far from there, with his friend Moses, who had liberated the people from Egypt, and one who was much more than a friend, one who made it all, one who came to fix it all, Jesus. It's a long story, my friends. It's not always pretty, is it? But you're in it. And it's a good story at the end. Amen.